Hey, everybody. Happy Halloween. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Reenactors Corner podcast. This one is a special bonus episode. This is, I think it's our third annual uh, Horror Stories of Reenacting episode, and uh, glad to be able to bring this special episode to you guys. Today, we have a couple of guests. Uh, guest number one is Ben Longfellow, who has been on the program many times in the past. Welcome back, Ben. Good to be here. Guest number two is our comrade Felix, who is he's been a member of my group for a long time. He lives out in California right now. Um, we hope he'll move back someday, but in any case, he's here on vacation. So uh, welcome to the podcast, Felix. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Cool. I've listened to all the episodes, even the bad ones. So it's really <laughs> cool to be here with you guys. Uh, I hope this is going to be a good one. Excellent. So I guess uh, let's just get into this spooky horror stuff that's appropriate for this special holiday. Uh, now, Felix, before we started recording, you and I were talking about some of the time that we've reenacted together in the past and some some spooky stuff and some just plain horrible stuff that's happened. So uh, where do you want to begin? Uh, I think I'm in the mood to tell the uh, to save the real spooky story for for after my not so spooky uh, just straight up horror show stories. Let's so, hear it. Yeah. All right. I'll paint the picture for story number one, uh, and this is a story of just uh, a horrible thing that a potentially horrible thing that happened. But uh, I was uh, 2007, I believe. We used to do a public display uh, not too far from our unit commander's house, about a 10-minute drive down the road. And uh, I was a young, recently graduated uh, college student at the time, and I didn't really uh, have much respect for certain firearm transportation laws. Uh, <laughs> in, in, in turn, by disres- not lacking respect for them, I mean I just didn't... Uh, I was ignorant. Oblivious. Yeah. So, yeah. so I was traveling uh, to the event, and I went to the unit commander's house, I think the night before, and spent the night, which was common in that in those times. Uh, and I was transporting gear to the event in my Volvo. Solid choice of car. Yeah, yeah, very, yeah. It was a great car. Uh, and I, I went, did a couple runs to the event, and then I went back to the unit commander's house, and all that was left was uh, the MG42 and the MG34. <laughs> Real ones, full auto. Uh, and I was traveling with a fellow uh, member of our unit who was in his late fifties, probably at the time. And he was dressed only in, uh, tropical shorts and a pith helmet. (laughs) And I really didn't think much of it. It was August. It was blazing hot and I just wanted to get it done. So I drove back to the unit commander's house with the, uh, mostly nude 55 year old man. And I, I loaded the MG42 and MG34 into my back seat. And on my way back to the event on the side road, I was pulled over by a state police officer. And uh, I said, I, he said, do you have any uh, anything in the car that I need to know about? And I said, just these two machine guns in the back seat. And uh, he said, well, I pulled you over because of this guy in your passenger seat. And I said, well, here's what we're doing. We're Second World War reenactors. We're on our way to a location only a mile from here and I'm transporting these two machine guns and he he kind of looked in the back seat and I saw his alarm when he saw these two glistening <laughs> third right machine guns in my back seat um, and he he totally believed what I was saying he was a very trusting guy obviously 
And, uh, I, you know, he looked at my license and insurance and I said, you can follow me to the event if you'd like to confirm what I've told you. And he, he did. He didn't actually turn in to follow me into the, the, the site. But, uh, so that was a kind of a horrifying situation. I definitely had my heart rate up at that one. Uh, the machine guns being ambiguous uh, in my possession. So, right. Like, you know, there are obviously strict laws yeah. about... I still don't know what they are. I don't really know what they are either, but yeah. I definitely know that you can't just borrow somebody's machine guns and drive around and have it in the backseat of your car. No, uh, you might be able to borrow someone's, like, uh, you know, small small caliber hunting rifle. I don't even not, think you can. Yeah, man. Not yeah. a belt-fed, two belt-fed automatic machine guns. So uh, Yeah, that's like a prison turn thing. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if I would have had as much luck these days, but it was a it was a different time. It was pretty horrifying. I hope your heart rate went up just a little bit. Picture me at 22 years old or whatever in that situation. I'm really wondering about the 55 year old guy in the pit helmet. You know, like yeah. do you think it was like he had, sort of a, he like has a, sunglasses on too. So you know, when they say the police are looking for something different, they're not necessarily looking at your speed. They're looking for something a, a, a tail light, headlight, a missing license plate, an expired. Uh, inspection sticker here in Massachusetts, I guess. Or a 55-year-old guy in a pit the helmet. Real no, no, sure. And he was pretty tan at the time. We'd been doing events all summer. So tan he man. really, yeah, tan, old man, half naked in my car. Uh, that's what, so I suppose the moral of the story is uh, don't drive around with old men who are half-dressed. Yeah, period. You're going to get pulled over. Um, Reasonable advice. Yeah. Uh, the second story is actually spooky i'll paint the picture for this one it was maybe a couple years later uh, another member of our old unit uh, owned and operated a metal shop in waterbury connecticut which is an old colonial city <coughs> uh, the the metal shop itself is over 100 years old i believe wow that's cool we used to use this this shop for repairing the unit the trucks the field kitchen the cannons storing equipment he had welding gear a full machine shop paint shop Everything you needed, basically, to keep a wheeled vehicle moving. And uh, we were there one night, and he had been telling me all day the story about the ghost in the shop, which he had alluded to before. But it's a, it was a machine shop, uh, so there were airlines, uh, electrical lines, everything strewn kind of haphazardly across the floor. And if you've been in any sort of industrial environment like that, you know to watch your step. And I'm sure his guys that worked there, the metal workers, uh, knew that as well. And he said, guys will get tripped all the time because when they were building this uh, building, a teenager that was on the construction crew uh, was buried alive. And he manifests himself in the form of pranks that a teenager would pull, like picking up a, an extension cord or an airline and tripping you. He also uh, it will take shiny objects, tape measures, pieces of steel, anything that shines will go missing. Wow. And he said... Uh, when I leave at night, I will walk down the stairs from my office and I say good night. If I don't say good night, I can't sleep at all that same night. So I have to say good night to the ghost. Wow. Now, our plan was to sleep upstairs in his office, about, I don't know, eight or nine of us. Yeah. And uh, the gentleman who owned the shop also was a model plane builder. So the, the roof of his uh, office was dozens of model World War II planes hanging by whatever thumbtacks and fishing line or something sure, like that. Sure, they were, sure. you know, hanging a couple feet and they'd been there forever. Yeah. This wasn't like an active runway situation. This was uh, a lot of models that he took a lot of pride in. 
Sure. And uh, I was up pretty late with him drinking beers in the paint sh- in the paint booth, as one does. Yeah, in the back of the shop. At which point, yeah. he continued to tell more spooky stories about this uh, ethereal presence. And we definitely heard some sort of footsteps. Everyone else was asleep. There were three of us down there. We heard some kind of footsteps, and you know, chalked it up to being partially inebriated. But uh, later on that night, I was trying to sleep uh, in the office in like an armchair. And uh, I abruptly woke up at some ungodly hour, like two or three in the morning, just woke up out of my sleep. And as I woke up, a plane came detached from the ceiling and fell next to my head. And it wasn't that which woke me up. I woke up seconds before this happened. And of course, I didn't sleep for the rest of the night, nor did I ever return to that metal shop. Didn't say goodnight. Uh, I didn't say goodnight, and also I was kind of on the ghost turf. So that's that's that story, which it. I think is a little bit more ghoulish than the other story. You would never go to the metal shop again. I'll never go back. I might. I may never go to Waterbury. That's spooky. I'll avoid it. Yeah, but that was a real thing that happened, and uh, Chris was there. I was there, and everyone wow. else was woken up by that. But I. It wasn't the plane falling that woke me up. I woke up, and moments later, this happened. Wow. Wow. I, I survived. You survived. Did you... Well, there was one other thing that we were going to talk about, and it was uh, a Fort Mifflin, sort of a ghost story, which... Oh, just people, recently. Yeah. yeah, for people listening, um, maybe you listened to <clears throat> previous episodes of the Halloween Horror Stories of Reenacting on this podcast, but... Fort Mifflin is this place where we do World War II reenactments that has a reputation for being one of the most haunted places in America, supposedly, or whatever. But many, many reenactors who have gone to events at this place have had ex- encounters or experiences that they can't explain or ghost sightings or whatever you want to call it. I mean, it's got a fascinating history of the place. Like during the Revolutionary War, the British blockaded it, and apparently they like brought a frigate on the high tide, went up beside the fort and just unloaded broadside after broadside in this place, you know? Like, it was basically wrecked in the war, and they rebuilt it after. And they still pull cannonballs out of the swamp, and I, can, I think, like, they hung some Confederate prisoner of war there during the Civil War. That sounded about right. Definitely a lot of history yeah, at this place. Yeah, yeah, So, a lot of history and a lot of death. My belief is that that particular period in history uh, surrounding the Revolutionary War regardless of your belief in a maybe a conventional ghost or residual energy from past generations, it was a time of great strife, great mm-hmm. toil. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think things of that vintage are invariably uh, haunted to some extent. I grew up in a, in a home that was built in the 1760s. Uh, wow. Interesting uh, things happened to me over the years in that house. Uh, family members were... Uh, encountered different uh, phenomena. But at Fort Mifflin, uh, which is approximately the same vintage as that house, I, I slept really well there. Uh, I didn't personally witness uh, anything other than my flashlight, which is I, it's some post-war, uh, immediate post-war, East or West German flashlight. Pretty reliable. But I, I had right? just put a new four and a half volt battery in it which, as you know, is one of the most satisfying things to have a fresh battery in the flashlight because they do wear down quickly. But I had not used it until we went on a nice long walk the one night. We went into the holding cell, which had held the, purportedly held the Confederate prisoner. Uh, 
then we also went into the powder magazines outside the fort. In all three of those locations, uh, my flashlight had been burning brightly, as it does with a new battery. But every time I entered uh, either of these three locations, the light would dim out and go off. Mm-hmm. Just slowly dim out and go off. And then as I exited, uh, the light would come back on. Now, you could chalk that up to some scientific uh, explanation of... I don't know what would interfere with a DC uh, flashlight battery. Yeah. I don't know if it's the magnetic field inside these rock formations, perhaps, but it was not one location. It was three locations. Jeez. And uh, we spent a bit of time in the Confederate uh, holding the, the cell, which had held the Confederate prisoner with the lights completely off. You were all, both of you were there and that was pretty spooky. Sure. Uh, but and and to have that absolute silence in there as well, uh, you could literally hear a pin drop. But my my flashlight was useless in these locations, and I know you have a, a story from that uh, location as well. You as well you may have told it on the previous podcast. I think uh, we saw but, like yeah. a shadow or whatever. Yeah. You know, it was yeah, yeah, spooky. How much of it is the is the is the brain playing the tricks playing tricks on the on the eyes? Sure. And vice versa? Yes. Yeah. Like, if you didn't hear before you went in that the place was haunted, would you still have a spooky thing happen? I mean... I don't know. I certainly well, would not have gone in there with any sort of apprehension. I'll say uh, this. I don't think we talked about this beforehand, but Fort Tabor, in uh, in, in the underground, the bunker, didn't something similar happen? No, I, I think I told this on, like, the first year, but I saw basically um, what I thought was a person going into a doorway to go up to an upper level. At Tabor. At Tabor. And then um, I kind of went over there to tell them that they shouldn't be there and there was nobody there. And I just thought, well, I don't know. I didn't really think twice about it. You know, sure. I wasn't thinking about it at all. Oh, that's right. Until that's right. later, that's right. I remember that. the guy who worked for the museum came over and talked about how people encounter ghosts there. And he yeah. said the thing that the people see most often is a figure over in that corner where I saw that thing. That's you know, crazy. Yeah, my blood ran right. cold when he said that. Yeah, that's crazy. Well, you know, this is not related uh, directly to reenacting, uh, other than our friendship through the hobby. But my aforementioned home from 1762, uh, the first phenomena that we encountered as a family there was my mother, who was not one to uh, not one to make a story up. She told me, and I was about 10 years old hearing this, that she had encountered someone in our basement dressed in a blue colonial uniform who introduced himself to her as Michael and said uh, that he was there to protect the house and uh, my mom said go away don't come back and never saw the apparition again Uh, and then Chris years later came to my house and I said uh, you know what do you think and uh, you you uh, came to a certain spot in the basement next to the washer and dryer and you said was it here i said yeah she was doing laundry he said yep because there was water draining in that in that location yeah that's but, right uh, you were you were spot on on that and you had no knowledge of that of the location of that wow that's wild yeah well these are the skills that you attain with years of paranormal investigations <laughs> yeah and uh there were other things that happened in that house not nearly as spooky but like I remember one time we had the old uh, solid blinds, spring-loaded solid blinds. Oh, yeah. And uh, one night in the middle of the night, uh, I was just looking at the window and the blind went up. 
you know, it was spring loaded, so it was very abrupt and Boing. jarring. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I saw yeah. I saw shapes in the hallway, uh, and mm. therefore, thereafter, I always slept with the door closed. Mm. But you, you go into a place where you know generations of people have lived and died. Sure. Uh, we were the third family to inhabit this this house in 250 years, and the family, the second family that we purchased it from. I believe inhabited it for four generations. Wow, that's a long so time. So you just think of the people who lived sure. in your bedroom. Sure. Uh, the people who were born, lived, and died in that, Good in that days, same room. bad days, etc., you know. Yeah. Sure. All right, let's go to some submissions. I asked on the uh, Facebook page for Reenactors Corner if people had spooky or terrible horror stories of reenacting that they wanted to share. And we got some good ones. So um, I'm just going to kind of read these and then we can kind of react to them. So the first one was from Reed Smiley. He writes, a couple of years ago, I participated in a 10 day reenacting trip to France. We followed in the footsteps of the fourth armored division and 30th infantry division on the 75th anniversary of the battles of Avranchet and Morton. We fought through the same fields and towns American soldiers had 75 years previously, even occupying the original foxholes of the company we represent. The trip started out really well. Great squad mates, fantastic reception from the local French, and the opportunity to nerd out about history all day, every day. Anyway, we finally get to our location and are told to deploy along a bend in Hedgerow. I was at the extreme right flank and took the first watch shift. The field in front of me separated us from suspected German positions. To my right and behind me was a hedgerow that divided our location from cornfields that we were told were off-limits. Due to the bend in the hedgerow, I couldn't see our extreme left flank, but as we had someone on watch every couple yards, I didn't think much of it. I was pretty tired from a long day of public battles, trying my best to translate French to English and driving around in our half-tracks but my excitement to stand guard along a real French hedgerow against squads of real Germans kept me going at first. About 45 minutes into my shift, I started hearing something behind me. At first, it was quiet. It could almost be the wind rustling leaves, but it wasn't a windy night. I knew that exhaustion can play tricks on the mind, so at first I tried to ignore it. The noises suddenly got louder and closer. It felt like it was coming from just a yard or two away from me. I couldn't see anything, but it felt like something was definitely there. I whispered the passcode and received no response. I woke up my sergeant and filled him in. We listened, and while he couldn't hear anything, he decided that it was worth going on a platoon-wide alert. Soon, we were all peering into the darkness, rifles at the ready. That's when we heard it. Boom, 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 boom. boom. It sounded just like artillery. It started slow, but rapidly picked up the pace at 11 p.m. on a Tuesday in rural France. What the fuck? A cold shiver went down my spine. I locked eyes with my buddy, and it was clear he heard the same thing. We exchanged a shrug and returns to peering into the darkness, definitely unnerved. Time went by very slowly. After one last terrible barrage, the artillery went quiet. It was the first complete silence I'd heard since my guard duty had begun. Suddenly, from around the bend in the hedgerow, we heard someone shout the passcode. From the general direction of the noises that started this awful night, a voice replied, 
Halt! Three squads of GIs, pent up from hearing mysterious noises, quickly replied with rifle and machine gun fire. Thankfully, my, thankfully, my shift on guard duty ended shortly after that, and I slowly drifted off into the worst night of sleep in my life. The noises came back. Again, they started quiet and got louder and louder. My reptile brain wanted me to stay up, but decided it was better to let my buddy on guard deal with the danger. I was dead tired, scared, and freezing cold. I could solve two of my problems by cocooning myself in my blankets and shelter half, and finally passed out, still clutching my rifle. The next morning, we compared notes to piece together what happened. The loud booming apparently came from a neighboring town celebrating the 75th anniversary of their liberation with fireworks. The hedgerow and local terrain blocked our view, but the echo sent us an eerie reminder of what liberation must have sounded like. The guy who yelled halt in the fields behind us was another GI reenactor who had gotten fed up with the noises and had decided to investigate with a handful of other guys without telling anyone or memorizing the passcode. However, we never figured out what was roaming around those hedgerows. While everyone heard something or some things patrolling the hedgerow behind us, no one ever caught the culprit. Was it a deer or perhaps some rodents? Or was it the ghosts of men long dead still patrolling the fields where they were killed? I like that. That's good. That's a good. That's a good story. I'm like, kind of jealous of this story. Yes. Yeah, well, I'm, the experience sounds great, even if we take away the the quasi paranormal. Sure. Or, I mean, look, Normandy is like an ancient place, you know, like these hedgerows. You know, they've been around for generations. Right. And uh, yeah, it's it gets cold there in the summer. You know, like I remember, I was there in June. It was freezing. So, yeah, no, I can totally picture that. <clears throat> I can also relate to the feeling of hearing something at night. Um, maybe at the end, we'll, we can talk about, uh, I'll talk about what happened this most recent Friday night. Um, <laughs> Very good. Because there is this thing where, you know, like he said, was it a deer or something smaller than a deer or, yeah. you know, who knows? Yeah. I thought the point when the three squads of GIs opened fire, uh, it was going to be three squads of GIs that weren't there before. Nice. That's where I thought the story was going. Sure. Still a great story. Really it sounds like a super cool uh, event as well. Yeah, that's so sounds, really, that really sounds amazing fantastic. Yeah, to do that on the actual uh, location. What, a, what an awesome experience. So the next story is from Justin Caphart. He writes, at an event in Danville, Illinois, I got up at about 3 a.m. to use the restroom. When I finally rolled out, I headed toward the town made up of old houses transported into the park as I walked towards the bathroom. I stopped when I saw a small child at the corner of one of the houses standing all alone. Couldn't be more than two years old. I walked over to the kid and started to talk to her, asking what her name was and where her parents were. She looked at me and turned around and walked around the corner. When I rounded the corner, the kid was gone and I continued to look for about 20 minutes, but I couldn't find any trace. The next day, my friends and I found a very old cemetery that seemed to be not kept up at all, where multiple children were buried. Wow. I love that story. Spooky. I'm convinced. <laughs> it's great. Um, that is spooky. All right. Aaron Griebler writes, One event down in Illinois, we were doing a night patrol with about half a tug of our guys, and about a full tug from another unit. It was a moonlit night, actually pretty bright out, but once you got into the trees, you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. In the woods, because of the change in temperature, 
There was a pretty dense fog and some low spots as well. We started hearing this awful screaming ahead of us. It sounded like a woman or a child just wailing, like they were being flayed alive or something. It was like 90 degrees that night. We were all drenched in sweat, but the chills I got from hearing that made it feel like the dead of winter. We would hear it from different directions, but every time we got close, it would come from somewhere else. At several points in the patrol, we sent guys ahead to check clearings, etc. So several times we would end up alone in pitch black. The only way we could find each other was through sound and touch by keeping a hand wrapped on each other's Y straps. On at least one occasion, when it was dead quiet and I was alone, that scream would sound like it was only a couple of dozen yards away, only for it to get closer, further, come from front and behind. It felt like some horror movie where you're being hunted by some monster in the dark, toying with you before picking you off. It felt like I was going to just get janked into the underbrush and never be heard from again. It didn't help that your senses would play tricks on you in the dark, so you would think you see, hear, or feel a comrade for it only to be just a tree or a bush. Even worse, you would reach out, certain to find the comfort of a wise strap and a quiet grunt of acknowledgement, only for it to be nothing but open air. Once we finally got out of the woods to head back to camp, we were exhausted, but our pace sure didn't show it. The locals said it was owls, which was not too comforting, even with an explanation for what we heard. I've heard many owls, and some can be quite disturbing if you've never heard them before. This sounded nothing like any owl I heard, but I sure hope they were. For owls, they sure were doing their best tortured human souls impression. Wow. I have not experienced anything like that, nor would I like to. I think this is testament that this hobby will take you to places you certainly would not normally go. Amen to that. You would not go involuntarily. Yeah. yeah. And you, yeah. Wow. Sounds horrifying. Sure. Truly. Um, I think I might have told this story in the past, um, but I had a similar experience with, I think it was uh, a fisher cat, mm-hmm. you know, and even though I, I knew in this case it was an animal, um, just to hear this noise in the night, this scream you sure. know, over and over, it was really unnerving. Was that an event? Or? Yeah. Wow. And for it to follow you as well, like in this story. Well, similar to this story, the the fisher cat, you know, you'd hear it in front of you and then you'd hear it to the side and then you'd hear it behind you, you sure. know, and you were in its territory and you couldn't see it, but you knew it could see you. Yeah. Coyotes yipping can be pretty, pretty unnerving too, you know? Yeah. Um, Especially, uh, like, I remember I was in the woods once and I heard this noise and it, it scared the hell out of me because they were so close. They seemed like they were like... Know, not too far away from me at all. And there seemed like there were a lot. I got stuck um, one January 1st or 2nd in my car. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I couldn't get my car back onto the road. Yeah. And there was one place in those woods where I knew that I could get cell reception, but it was quite a walk away from my car. And I would have to walk out there to try to find out if, if AAA was coming or if someone was coming to rescue me or if I was going to be spending my night out there. Mm. And uh, I was out there on the phone talking to someone, and a coyote started howling from what sounded like ten feet away. Wow, dude, that's that's crazy. It's terrifying. Sure. Adam Gallagher writes: You should do an episode on failed aging techniques and the horror of losing <clears throat> all that material. Looking <laughs> at a certain someone. Well, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you something. I did just a couple of years ago. I for the very last Fort Indian Town Gap event, I purchased it. 
a new uniform for the role that I was going to be in in that event. I fastidiously followed the common aging uh, techniques. I showered in it. I, yeah. heat, I heat gunned it many times. I sent it to another member of our unit who did fantastic sewing work on it. Yeah. And then uh, I got home and I washed it, but I washed it in warm water. Mm. I forgot to uh, set the the washer to cold. Yeah, and it's, it's it will never fit me again. Wow! Shrunk the lining, the rayon lining didn't shrink, wow. but the wool shrunk. Sure. So if I put it on, I have these uh, wizard mm. sleeves coming out of it. It's just it. There's yeah, it's a failed. I consider that a failed aging uh, endeavor. However, it was a one-time use. What Adam is referring to is the number of tunics that I have destroyed over the years. Sure, sure, it's been considerable. Um, yeah. yeah. I, my, I think my favorite one is uh, I left a Soviet gymnastroika on yeah. the roof of my house right. uh, when I went away for three months. And it aged, it it bleached one side of it, like, thoroughly, you know, like this thing was white. But the other side, you know, looked new. And so I had to turn it around and leave it on the roof for another uh, three months. And so this thing was on the roof for half a year. And of course, you know, it's not like on a human body, so there was some weird sort of like differential fading. And also, like a cotton garment being outside for, I don't know, half a year, basically I put it on and it had shrunk and it started to disintegrate. So. Your yeah. trail of terror is truly horrifying. It's bad, dude. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've done that to a wool tunic. Um, it's like turning it well. brown, you know. Um, there were the beach uniforms that we set yeah, on fire. Set um, our uniforms on fire. Truly, what, what others have I destroyed over the years? There was an overcoat somewhere in there. Destroyed an overcoat by leaving it out out in the roof, and it turned like a shit brown. Yeah, um, you are the ghastly ghoul of aging. Yes, yes, yes. Steve Michael writes: I was at Fort Mifflin one year in the casemates. Woke up to my watch, digital at the time, have everything set to zero, and my phone, which was charged completely dead and need to be recharged. Nothing spooky, but definitely odd. Anyone at Mifflin also probably has felt at night when out walking, that feeling of being watched. Spooky place. For sure. I had the same thing happen to my phone, which I simply uh, chalked up to the cold, mm. training the battery. But then again, we had uh, a massive raging inferno in our sleeping area, yeah. and it was uh, next to me. Therefore, uh, it, it benefited from my body heat, but... Yeah, uh, the, I remember that. The watch set to zero. Yeah, I, I have no explanation for that. You're out of you're out of time, bud. You've been haunted. It's spooky. Time's up. You've been haunted. Otto Yanko writes: I heard a story once of a Revolutionary War reenactor who was arriving late in the evening for an event when he came across a group of reenactors by a campfire. He spent the night with them, talking and enjoying himself. When he woke in the morning, there was nobody there, and he walked on farther and found the real encampment. Wow. I've heard stories like this before out of the Civil War crowd. Same, actually. And I'm same. always, yeah. I'm, honestly, I'm super jealous of these people who have definitely encountered uh, ghostly platoons of long, long deceased soldiers. Uh, obviously, that would, that's never happened to me, and I can't imagine uh, trying to process that, but and you hear the same story from uh, Gettysburg and other yeah. uh, battlefields where uh, I like the commemorations lore. take place. I like place. the lore aspect too. You know, like I heard it from I, I, you know, like sure. it's like a hobby lore. You know, I would yeah. take it as a compliment that yeah. the actual ghosts of the actual 
soldiers would identify me as someone that was part of their army at the they time wanna as well. Hang, yeah, they, they, they wanted want to, hang, to hang out with you. My you impression know, is like, so good, they want to hang yeah. out with me. <laughs> I would take that forward as the ultimate compliment, the ultimate validation of what we do, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. See, we could never have that. We could never have that. They would. They would uh, pick that. They, I, that's why it's never happened to us. Because civil war and revolutionary war um, dead turn into ghosts, but like the World War II German military dead turn into zombies. Yes. Right. Yes. 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 Um, doesn't work. Still waiting us. to encounter them. <laughs> they wouldn't hang out with me even if uh, they were ghosts and not zombies. Yeah, I mean, even if they were living human. That's the other thing, though, is that. Some of these people are like still alive. Yeah, they don't want anything. They're made. they're almost ghost like in right. their in their alive state. I, yeah, they, some of the alive ghosts have hung out with us. Actually, it's, it's creepy enough. It's yeah. creepy as hell. It's creepy as hell. Yeah. Um, so, just I'm going to finish up this episode with a thing that happened on Friday night. This is the Madman um, follow up. Madman of Haydenville. If you listen to last year's Horror Stories of Reenactment with uh, Billy and Ben and I, you will have heard this uh, now years-long saga of this site in Western Massachusetts where we do reenactment events where there is this madman or hermit who lives illegally in a shack on the adjacent property. Um, so we went back out there. My nemesis. <laughs> on Friday night, and uh, we decided to do some observation duty in kind of this overgrown meadow that is adjacent to the property that is inhabited by the madman. And as it happened, as we were going out there to do observation duty, the landowner's dog was kind of circling around us uh, in the forest as we made our way to this field. And I didn't really think anything of it because the... This is a rural area. The landowner's dog kind of just has free reign sort of to, to go wherever he wants and or wherever she wants. And I was like, I just figured that we would get a certain distance away and um, the dog would go back to its owner. Well, when we finally got out to the place where we were going to do the observation duty, I was surprised to see that the dog was still with us. And we kind of took up our positions into groups I was close to the edge of the field where there's a stream where we previously had heard some noises. That was kind of how we found out about this madman situation. And the other group was kind of on the other side of the field. And the dog mostly was near where I was, um, kind of charging at the edge of the woods, kind of charging towards that stream. And uh, as I watched and listened, I began to hear something moving around along the stream at the edge of the clearing. Um, it sounded like something big. It sounded like a person um, or something like that. But I was, of course, I mean, it could have been a, a raccoon. It could have been um, a, a deer or, or some small animal that happened to be making a lot of noise as it splashed through the stream and it kind of picked its way through the underbrush over there. But um the dog started to become increasingly agitated, repeatedly uh, charging towards that spot and then coming back over sort of to where I was and then running back over there. And the dog started to really seem frightened and started to bark mm. at that spot. Mm. And it's like, all right, there's something there. I hear it. It's attracted the attention of the dog. The dog's reacting to it. 
And we had been out there for a little while by this point, and I called over Villy and I said, listen, um, we got to take this dog back to its owner. You know, he might be looking for the dog. We've been out here for a little while. So we started walking back. Yeah. And on the way out towards the field, that dog had just been kind of roaming all over the place and circling around us. On the way back, that frightened dog never got more than a few feet away from our from our guys. Wow. It was right with us, you know, seemingly eager to be going back. And then I heard a sound. It was... Uh, it was the unmistakable, loud, sharp click of two stones being smashed together. Mm-hmm. And the person who was in front of me whipped around and said, hey, did you hear that? I said, yeah, I did. And I paused and I listened and I didn't hear anything. And some some other guys in the squad had heard it, but some hadn't. So it didn't, you know, after a few moments of silence, we resumed our trek. And then it happened again from the same area. One loud, sharp click as of two stones being hit together this is uh, everybody heard it. this is where i saw the lights yes where where we heard the noises was in the area where you would see the lights where mm. where we where i heard the noises and where the dog barks towards the we, when we were walking out it came, was coming from a little bit of a different direction so it was a so that's the time. update you know time. and it was it was creepy out there there was a bright moon uh, but it was still, of course, very, very dark in the forest, and um, so that's it. You know? Didn't uh, the landowner said they had a trail cam out there? And yeah, they captured, captured an image of the madman. Images yeah. of the hermit, yeah. yeah. And the, the adjacent property owner said that uh, the hermit has kind of established a vegetable garden, he thinks maybe on his property, mm-hmm. which is a problem because there's like a restraining order against this guy. He's not supposed to be on that property at all. Yeah. And I was maybe like farming it out there in his subsistence, you know, solo, insane forest denizen way. <laughs> land walked by land. So, look, I don't know if, you know, what I heard was an animal or if it was the madman or maybe <clears throat> if it was just a Bigfoot, you know, possibly an ape man. An or ape man, yeah. Uh, possibly the madman has become an ape man <laughs> or is working together with the ape men in league with the in ape, league ape men in so, conjunction with yeah. the ape. Yes. Uh, mm. so that's it so um, thanks everybody for tuning in to our Halloween special thank you Ben and Felix for coming on for it's been a pleasure to be here. yeah absolutely alright guys stay safe I'll see you in the field happy Halloween Before we go, you may want to check out Feller Kopf over at german-worldwar2.com, that is german-ww2.com, uh, where they sell lots of pocket litter and a lot of cool paperwork stuff. And you can get 7% off, off of your next purchase there by using the discount code PODCAST2020, that is PODCAST2020, at checkout. Once again, uh, and as always, thanks to Mike, a.k.a. Retroman, for editing this podcast. Thanks, Mike.